This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 9th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, over the past several weeks, we've talked quite a bit about vaccines, but we've largely concentrated on how development of vaccines is going. I wanted to talk today about how potential vaccines might be used. But before we get to that, there is some new activity on the vaccine development front, which we should cover. Eric, can you talk about that? I think there are two pieces of news. The first one is late breaking news from yesterday at the time that we're recording this about one of the vaccine trials, which has been put on a clinical hold. What happened, according to the New York Times, is that a patient in the trial developed transverse myelitis. And because of that, the trial has been temporarily stopped until we can figure out if there's a connection between that syndrome which developed and the vaccine. This happens frequently in these sorts of trials. Something unexpected occurs, and it's important to figure that out before putting anyone else at risk. Transverse myelitis is a relatively unusual syndrome. There are many potential causes. It could conceivably be associated with vaccination, though. And so it's important to do the due diligence to figure out as best as one can whether this is a result of the vaccine or a coincidence. As is always true in phase three trials, as you scale up the number of people, you find unexpected things, some of which might be connected to vaccination and many of which might not. So I think it remains a question as to whether or not this is going to affect the trial in any material way. But for now, it's certainly going to put that trial on pause. I mean, I guess I would look at this carefully. And as you point out, Eric, this is part of how these studies are conducted. And I see this not as a failure, but rather that the process is working. When I think about testing, when we test, uh, let's say, a college campus or a large group and we find positive tests, it's not that we shouldn't have tested. We should figure out where transmission is going on so that we can stop transmission. That is actually a success in my view. And one should augment the processes to improve how we do testing and identify cases. In vaccine development or any therapeutic development, there is a process to do testing that allows us to systematically determine safety. And that process is working extremely well here in my view, that with thousands of person years of follow-up, Things happen that are unexpected. There is an oversight process to carefully review that. And then determinations are made if it's related to the test article background that are events that are going to happen. Because you're in a clinical trial does not mean the noise of life will not happen to you. And there is great care in evaluating if it's noise of life or related to the study or study product. This to me is a part of the process that is working extremely well and should bring reassurance to the community that oversight and care is being brought to bear to the studies that are ongoing. I completely agree with you on the process part of it, Lindsay. It certainly is a concern though that one of the vaccines should do this. Not so much because it necessarily indicts any other vaccine, but Right now in clinical trials, we only have 
two sorts of strategies being tested. There will be a third, I think, relatively soon. There are vaccines based on adenoviral vectors of various kinds, and there are messenger RNA vaccines. This one belongs to the group of adenoviral vectors. It's different from the others that are relatively far along in that it's a chimp adenovirus, but if adenoviruses in general are associated with adverse events, we certainly don't know that, but that would wipe out a group of vaccines. Eric, I wasn't implying that we shouldn't be careful about safety. Of course we should, but we need to be careful about determining causality. You know, it's naming a song with a single note. It's possible, but it's very difficult. And I think that the process to carefully review safety events is in play and is ongoing. And if this is related or might be related to the product or the study, that will be assessed by a careful oversight review process. I remember a prior study that I've done with the NIH with an orthopox vector, sort of the MVA vaccinia class of immunogens. And we had a case of troponin leak or myocarditis, which was a concerning complication of that delivery system. Upon careful evaluation, we determined that that volunteer had a bypass tract and had a tachyarrhythmia from a bypass tract and was not related to the product. Those are the kinds of evaluations that need to go on to determine if this is background noise, if it's a predisposition, if it is related to the product. And that determination and that assessment is critical to assessing the risks and critical for us determining how best to move forward safely, but also to gain the trust of the community that great care and independence is going into the evaluation of safety and that the rush to make a vaccine, which is a public health urgency, is not doing it by sacrificing safety, but rather there are processes in place to carefully review side effects and determine the likelihood that they're related to the constructs. And I think that process is going on and we need to let the evaluations unfold to determine the likelihood of relationship, if at all, or if likely, and then the implications to the field, which as you say, are significant. Yes, and I think I stress what your story brings up, which is this kind of clinical hold in trials is not unusual at all. And lots of times, particularly when you're starting with a new agent like this, things come up and you have to spend some time figuring them out. So I don't want to be too pessimistic about this. I would say, though, that we're certainly spreading our bets on vaccines, but we're not spreading them too far. And in fact, getting back to Steve's original question, there is another vaccine candidate that got reported this week. It's the candidate that was produced in Russia, which got a lot of publicity a while back. It has got publicity because the Russian government announced that they were registering it uh, without actually presenting the clinical data. Also, it has this catchy name, Sputnik 5 or Sputnik V. Actually, I've heard it's pronounced both ways. And it's been very highly touted. The trial is finally published. It was published in The Lancet this past week, and it reports the early phase, phase one trial in a small number of patients. And I guess I'd summarize it by saying that it looks similar to other vaccines of its type. It was a reasonably well done trial. It's again an adenovirus vector, but what's different about this one is 
they produce two different adenoviruses. One is a serotype 5, an AD5 virus, and another is a serotype 26 or an AD26 virus, each carrying the same antigen, the viral spike protein. Now, we've seen each one individually in other trials, AD5 or AD26. So in this clinical trial, the investigators recruited two groups, each with 38 patients. One group of 38 patients received a freeze-dried preparation of the vaccine. The other group received a frozen preparation of the vaccine. It turned out that that didn't make very much difference. In each one of these groups, 18 patients received AD5 alone or AD26 alone. And the third group of 20 patients received AD26 followed three weeks later by a booster dose of AD5. All of the regimens were tolerated pretty well. There were the usual local and mild systemic reactions, but nothing particularly remarkable. And all of them produced neutralizing antibodies, although they were somewhat higher in the groups that received the AD26 followed by AD5. And there was also some T-cell reactivity. And once again, that seemed a little bit better in the groups that were primed and boosted with different vaccines. So altogether, I guess I'd say without being able to compare directly that the responses to this vaccine looked similar to other vaccine studies that we've seen. I mean, Eric, as you point out in these early phase one trials, it's small numbers. So it's difficult to fully assess safety or immunogenicity, but the early data are this behaves like AD5 and AD26, which are both viral vectors that have been used for decades in vaccine development for other constructs. And so the side effect profile seems consistent with that. A challenge is, which you also allude to, is how do you compare this to others when they're different assays, you know, different regimens? And so it becomes hard to know how well this compares to the other constructs being looked at in the field. But broad strokes looks comparable. It is curious why they did the lyophilized versus the frozen. But when you stop to think about it, that is a non-critical path assessment because the critical path is safety, immunogenicity, protection. But ultimately, if a product does work, how do you distribute it in the field globally? And the issue of frozen versus lawfulized, as trivial as that seems, turns into a very important parameter to just think about the supply chain and the implications on the supply chain. So it is a nice twist to the assessment to sort of take a look at this element that does have broad implications. And one does need to show that the lyophilization process does not diminish the potency of the construct. So how does this vaccine fit into the worldwide landscape? Well, it's hard to know yet because this is still an early clinical trial. There was a lot of publicity around the fact that the Russian government registered this vaccine and declared it an early success. But registration is just a word. It was really at the same stage that other vaccines are. And in the end, it appears that this vaccine is going to be tested in phase three trials that look very similar to other trials. The fact that it's registered appears to mean that it would be allowed to be used outside of trials, but it doesn't appear that that's happening at least at much of a scale right now. The good thing about this vaccine is that it's being taken up and being deployed in trials in some areas that 
are not heavily covered by the other vaccine candidates, including countries like India and, of course, uh, Russia. And more is better. The more candidates we have out there, the better off we are. So I think it's a good thing to have more attractive looking candidates. I mean, Steve, where does this fit in? There are a dozen or two constructs that have phase one data. And these are small numbers, 38 times two. You know, impossible to assess safety or efficacy in the current study. That doesn't mean the data aren't important, doesn't mean it's not promising, but there are many candidate vaccines that are promising that should and need to go forward for proper testing. But without proper testing, it is difficult to make any meaningful assessment about efficacy. And as we've seen in the uh, earlier part of the discussion, to properly be able to assess safety for potentially rare events. So I think these data are encouraging, but they're far from informing us if it works. So let's get back to the question of how we're going to deploy these vaccines once we have them and know that they work. We know that we won't have enough doses for everyone who wants one when a vaccine is approved. And this is likely to be exacerbated if approval comes early, because there's just not going to be enough time to make enough doses. So given all of that, who should get the early doses? Well, it's a really good question because there hasn't been a great job of planning thus far. And in the sort of breakneck speed of vaccine development, it seems like this is really an integral part. There are groups giving it some serious thought though. And although there aren't strict guidelines yet, there are starting to be the outlines of guidelines. Last week, the CDC got a lot of publicity when they issued very rough guidelines to state health departments regarding early deployment of vaccines. When this was covered in the news media, most of the focus was on the dates, the fact that they chose late October as a potential time for deploying vaccines. And that raised a lot of concerns about the aggressive timelines and what that meant for vaccine approval. In these, the CDC analyzed a few different scenarios where one or another vaccine or both vaccines would become available because there'd be an emergency use authorization or an EUA in the last quarter of this year. And the two vaccines they're discussing appear to be those that have started phase three NIH-sponsored trials. And each scenario projects that there will be a relatively small number of doses somewhere in the one to three million doses range in October, and with somewhere between 20 to 45 million doses by the end of the year. Now, again, the focus has been on that late October date, but I think it's important that the CDC's job is to anticipate scenarios, and they're not involved in the approval process. So I think they're doing the right thing by trying to come up with what would we do with it. And many of the eventualities that the CDC prepares for, like any other disaster scenarios, will never come to pass. However, this is the first idea we have of what the government is going to suggest for deployment. And in that document, which is quite skeletal, the CDC cites four categories of people who should get the vaccine early. And that includes healthcare professionals, essential workers, national security populations, and long-term care facility residents and staff. But the details are very sketchy. In fact, they don't really define most of those categories. And the list ends there, so there's no discussion of what happens after that. And in fact, if you add up the number of people in those populations, 
you still won't have enough vaccine to go around for all of them. So it's not a fully formed story quite yet. Eric, I mean, I think that as you frame it, this is very important for us as a community to be thinking about immediately. You know, we need to plan for success and plan for problems. We need to get rid of a date by which we demand an answer. We need to follow the science. We need to do the studies as quickly as possible to get an answer that is credible and meets our collective goal of safe and effective. And that has to be linked to availability of product, meaning manufacturing to scale. So if we remove a date by which we demand an answer and turn it to rather how quickly can we answer the question and have product or vaccine available to scale, then who and where would we deploy it, particularly as product increasingly becomes available? And conceptually, as the CDC outlines, which I agree, it's their job to help us frame this discussion so we as a community can debate it and frame it properly before we implement so that we can implement quickly. It's those at risk. And it's those at risk for severe illness and those at risk for acquisition and those at highest risk for severe illness. We have looked at in designing the studies and we've looked at in our public health measures that we are developing such as our seniors, those with severe heart, lung illness, comorbid illness, those who live in congregate settings like long-term care facilities, as you mentioned, and who has been disproportionately impacted with infection and severe illness. Our Black, Latinx, and other populations have disproportionately borne the severity of illness with COVID. And I think we need to think carefully about how do we scale up deployment of a safe and effective vaccine determined by science to enable the maximum benefit, which are those at most severe risk of complication or acquisition, which also brings in the healthcare workers and the frontline workers, which I think will enable them to be more effective at doing their job and also decrease the risk of them becoming vectors and amplifiers if they were to acquire it, which all of us are at risk for acquiring it as we know. So I think this is very important for the CDC and the public health authorities to be debating, but we need to look at it where we follow the science and not have a particular date where we must have an answer that the science does not support. If we do not have a transparent, open process that develops trust, then the communities won't actually trust the answer. And we know in the vaccine field that trust and transparency are inextricably linked and critical to be able to get acceptance and uptake so that a safe and effective vaccine can have its desired effect. As you said, the CDC guidelines are fairly short on details about the priority populations. The guidelines focus much more on the distribution of the vaccines. So have we gotten other input on who the appropriate recipients are going to be and how they'd be identified, prioritized? Several groups have contributed to a discussion, but there's a good analysis that came out last week, a report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine that went into great detail in this. Now, it's important to remember that the National Academies are government chartered, but aren't part of the government. So this is advisory only. It doesn't mean that their guidelines will be implemented. It's also important to remember that the framework that they produced is a draft. So they were awaiting public comment. I think the public comment period has already closed, and they'll take those public comments into account to finalize their report. So 
it's not ready to roll quite yet, but it's quite thoughtful and it's worth looking at. It is rather weighty. It's more than 100 pages of discussion. So it's not an easy read, but it does take into account much of the thinking around this and a lot of the history of what vaccine deployment has looked like in the past. It's actually an interesting read, especially the part about the history of vaccine deployment. They spend a lot of time discussing the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic. Because it was known that that was coming, there was a lot of time to pre-plan, and a lot of pre-planning went into it, thinking about who should get the vaccine and when the vaccine would be available, and then the timing of the deployment. And there was a nice plan put together. Unfortunately, the vaccine manufacturers were unable to meet the dates of delivery that they had originally proposed, and the plan was highly dependent on those dates. So it turned out that by the time the vaccines were available, that much of the crisis had passed, and uh, it was already late in the season. So the small amount of vaccine that was available early didn't even cover the highest priority groups. And in addition, there were several other problems. Although the CDC formulated guidelines and passed those on to states, states implemented them in different ways. They had different sorts of distribution systems, and there was a lack of coordination. So it didn't really work out. So this was not considered to be a success. The CDC has gone back and done sort of an analysis of that failure and reformulated a priority list for influenza in 2017. But the categories for risk in influenza are really a little bit different from the coronavirus. So there's only so much you can take from that. Perhaps a more interesting example is somewhat more successful, which was deployment of the investigational Ebola vaccines during the big Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Now, once again, there's only so much you can extrapolate from that because Ebola has a very different biology. And the way of controlling Ebola, which is not a respiratory virus, is through careful contact tracing, which is somewhat easier when there's direct contact, and a ring vaccination strategy if you have a limited amount of vaccine. And it's not so clear that that would work as well for a respiratory virus, particularly one which is already very widespread, like the coronavirus is. The Ebola vaccine has had a lot of success. And I think that many people credit it with helping limit and shut down the spread of Ebola during both the end of the last outbreak and during the current outbreak going on. But there are important lessons from it. In particular, community distrust was enormous in the communities affected by Ebola. And so I think that there's something that we can take away since we already know that there are many community members who are not enthusiastic about getting vaccine. And I think we really have to think about how to engage them. Eric, I think you're absolutely right that different pathogens have different transmission dynamics and different impact on their communities. Ebola in West Africa, Ebola in the DRC, pandemic flu have similarities in that they're novel viral infections that are spreading widely. But as you note, very different transmission dynamics and social undermining and impact. And we have to consider all of that as we develop another countermeasure against another novel pathogen, this time SARS-CoV-2. So I think this kind of discussion is critically important for the community to be having 
to frame how hopefully we'll have an effective vaccine, effective countermeasure. Hopefully we'll have it to scale. How do we actually deploy it and how do we have the environments we need to deploy it to have trust that it is the right thing to do? And that requires engagement of many dimensions of society and public health to have these conversations because there'll be advances and setbacks, things which are encouraging, things which are discouraging, as we have with any scientific endeavor. And that discussion needs to happen so that we can, when we have a successful intervention, be able to deploy it to the communities that most need it. And if those communities don't trust the intervention, then it is unlikely to be deployable. And I hope what we have learned from flu and from COVID is it's a highly transmissible respiratory virus. So if there are elements of the local community or global community that have uncontrolled transmission, then everybody is at risk. And we have to develop a process that creates the trust so that all communities will find this acceptable so that we can break the back of transmission, which is really what I think we need to do with the vaccine. Even though you know, I wanna protect me and my loved ones, the reality is if we can break the back of community transmission, then we all benefit. And we need to set the infrastructure and the discussion to enable that. And I think the National Academy of Medicine, the CDC, the ACIP, a variety of groups are trying to jumpstart this discussion, which I think is a very important one for us to be having. So in the National Academy's report, how in fact do they prioritize distribution of the vaccine? So let me get there in a second, Steve, but let me give you a little more of their rationale for how they came up with that. They looked at the ethical guidelines that had been formulated by a number of groups, some of which we've published, for allocating scarce resources during this outbreak, things like PPE and ventilators and drugs like remdesivir. And they found many commonalities among these ethical guidelines. They focus on maximizing lives while at the same time minimizing inequities. And importantly, they felt that any guidelines had to be transparent so that anyone can understand the trade-offs. And that gets back to Lindsay's point about buy-in. In the end, the authors report an overriding ethical principle. And I'm going to quote it here, maximize societal benefit by reducing morbidity and mortality caused by transmission of the novel coronavirus. And then they went on to create a risk and benefit analysis for each potential recipient group according to that ethical framework. In the end, they proposed four groups based on vaccine availability. The quick rundown is there's phase one, which includes both 1A and 1B, high-risk healthcare workers and first responders in the first category, and people at high risk because of comorbid illness and older adults in congregate or crowded settings in the second category. In phase two, there'd be workers in critical industries, teachers, those living in congregate shelters like prisons and, um, and shelters, and people at moderate risk of developing severe disease because of their comorbidities. Phase three would be young adults and children, workers in important industries that weren't covered in phase two, and then phase four would be everyone else. So I think in this discussion, we've reduced an enormous document to a few minutes. And the recommendations might change in the final document, but I think they're going to look very similar to this. 
No, I agree. The framing makes a lot of sense. And as we learn more about the groups that are hardest hit, the details of how to prioritize groups, I hope, will become better informed with new data. But the framing fundamentally makes a lot of sense of those at risk, either for complication or for acquisition. And I think this is useful to stimulate discussion as we are having. So you talked about buy-in. How do we get buy-in to any plan that prioritizes some groups over others? Steve, that's a very important question. I think that we do this in medicine all the time and that we plan to treat everybody, but those who get sicker are the ones who need the treatment first. While we are scaling up or making any assessment of deploying a treatment, so this is a routine part of medicine in my view. And what we need to do is have the public discussion so people understand that this is not COVID exceptionalism. This is a development of treatments that we incorporate in how we practice medicine to maximize the benefit for those who are sickest and to deploy public health interventions that have the biggest impact most rapidly, because we all benefit. And so I think that that will be part of a healthy discussion that we need to be having more, but it needs to be tied to the science and following the science because that should be the basis of our decision-making. So Lindsay, I agree with that. And I bring the conversation all the way back to the very beginning when we were talking about the potential complication in the ongoing trial of one of the vaccine candidates right now. One of the overriding concerns in getting community buy-in is to be honest with everyone and to be transparent about problems when they come up and transparent about the choices that are being made. And so I think it's important to continue that and not appear as cheerleaders, but appear as thoughtful in our approach to developing the vaccines and testing them and approving them. And each step along the way, we should be clear about what choices are being made. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.